Some of you, when you think of church, you've been burned. And so it, it brings out a lot of baggage in you. The church did this to you. The church did that to your parents. The church, whatever. Others of you, you've, you've only had positive experiences. And that was amazing. Are you a hurdler? Yeah, good. Some of you have very positive experiences. Whatever it is. Here tonight, I want to say this about this church. Maybe you've been brought up under the premise that the church does not have imperfections. And is not built of imperfect people. But let me tell you something. This church has plenty of imperfections. This church has plenty of sin that it's dealing with. But I hope and pray that this particular community is a church that is willing to be honest about those struggles. Is willing to welcome in people in various pieces of their journey. And is willing to not accept where we are. But to, by the grace of God, continue to push forward. And so if tonight's your first time here, welcome to this particular journey. We are a bunch of messed up folks who have found a desperate need in the only saving grace through Christ. Just to be up front with you, all right? Speaking of churches, we've been studying this uh, book of 1 Peter. And I want to note one particular thing before we dive in tonight. So excited about this passage. Um, he's writing to a church that's, that's in turmoil. In, in, they're, they're, they're troubled. People are, and the cool thing is, is it's a young church like us. They haven't been around that long. In fact, the gospel is like just starting to spread to this area of the world, which is now modern day Turkey. And they're like, they're, they're, they're fearful. They're like looking around at each other. Like, what are we going to do? Because Bob just died. Probably not a biblical name there, Bob, but we'll go with it. You know, um, they're asking tough questions. They're wrestling with a lot of the same things that you and I are wrestling with. And listen, this particular passage tonight is going to deal with the imperfections of this church. So if you're not ready to deal with those, if, if, you're, if you're not ready to deal with those imperfections tonight in your own life and in our particular church, then tonight's going to be tough for you. Uh, it's been tough preparing for this because I've had to really examine us and me. And whenever that happens, it gets really humbling really fast. Amen. So I want you guys to grab the word in front of you and open to first Peter. If you need the page number, it's on the screen. First Peter chapter one. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 22 to 25. Peter so far has commanded this church in turmoil. Two different things. In verse 13 of chapter one, He called the church to put their full hope in the grace of God. Put all that you are, all your hope, everything that you can believe in. Put that trust and faith and hope in the grace of Christ. And the second command, he said, he said, be holy as he is holy. So he's hit two commands. Tonight, he hits a third and he works backwards with why this is important. Verse 22, if you're there, say, I'm there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a, what's the word? Pure heart. First word I want to wrestle with is the word soul. This is a strange word, isn't it? Is it for you? We've grown up with all this lingo. It's like, what is soul? Is it a food? You know, is it a women's ministry? Like, is it a, 
Is it the piece of your foot that slides into a firmly fitting puma? You know, like, like what, is, what is a soul? The Greek word for soul is this. Put this up. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the, the literal Greek terminology, this is the English uh, transliteration, is sukha. But you'll see it has some viewings of uh, a word that we use in our, in our English language. I, I was really curious to find out, listen, the word soul is found in 281 verses in the scripture. I really didn't think it would be that much. 281, the first in Genesis 27, the last in Revelation 20. So it spans the whole course of scripture. But what is our soul? Uh, we use a lot of lingo in, in the Christian church, like, especially in the early 90s, like invite Jesus into your heart. And I, it's kind of weird to talk like that, right? Like, it's like, what does that mean? You're like, so, so can the doctor find your soul in an MRI? You know, like the doctor comes in, he's like, uh, son, you have an inflamed soul. You know, like we're trying to figure it out. We're not sure, but it's pushing all of your organs to the side. No, I mean, the soul can't be found in an MRI or a CAT scan or it's literally your inward spiritual being. Now, I wish I could even define that further for you, but, but that's the mystery of our soul, the, the place in us through Christ that's eternal. It, it's that soul piece that, that, yes, the Holy Spirit ends up residing in. And it's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, just to even talk like that, it seems mysterious. But the scripture says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Put up verse 22 here on the screen. Now, I want to work with this piece. Having purified your souls by your obedience. We have to define what that means. So he's, he's saying that somehow our soul has been purified. But how does that happen? Your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, at first glance, you would think that, that this is talking about justification or the moment when you started relationship with Christ. Let me explain justification again. Justification is, is that moment when you and Jesus begin relationship and you're found innocent because of the blood of Christ. You're justified. It, it's that moment when you begin walking with him and, and following him and seeking after him, you would think that that's the, the purifying piece here. But it's not. Having purified your souls by your obedience. We talk over and over and over here about the difference between us saving ourselves and Christ saving. Do you save yourself by your obedience, church? Uh, does all of a sudden you win, do all of a sudden you win favor in God's eyes because of your great deeds and great acts? No. It all rests on the shoulders of Christ. So what Peter's saying is there is a purity of the soul that comes along with sanctification. Remember, he's still teaching on be holy as I am holy. And so as he describes in greater detail what it means to be purified, he's describing the process by which we become more like Christ in obedience to the truth. For a sincere, what's the word? Brotherly love. Uh, does anyone know the city of brotherly love? Philadelphia. 
It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Have you, have you been there? All right? You're like, if this is the city of brotherly love, then I'm a little bit confused, you know? Um, just me, I guess. And, and Philadelphia, the literal Greek word for this uh, brotherly love here is Philadelphia. It's not pronounced exactly like that, but if I were to put up the Greek word, that's what it means, interestingly enough. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the third command of Peter's chapter one. This is really this really tugged in my heart all week. Especially the word earnestly. I, I kept reading this over and over, okay? Purifying our hearts, uh, sincere love of our brothers, earnestly. Uh, the Greek word is ektenos. And ektenos, listen, literally means intensely. Literally means fervently. It's very, very active. So we are to love our brothers, and brothers here means other believers, with a very fervent love. Let me show you an example, and then we have much work to do. Uh, have you ever played a hide-and-go-seek? Any of you guys? Yes. Brilliant game, isn't it? It's amazing. It progresses as time goes along. For instance, right now with my little girl, she's three. A hide-and-go-seek is me hiding in the corner um, of, uh, you know, of, our, of the wall. You know what I'm saying? Like, she can clearly see me, but this is fun for her. You know, she, I mean, I'm, I'm literally hiding for three seconds and she thinks it's the greatest game ever. If you were to get a group of adults together and we were to play hide and go seek, that, like, that would be horrible. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, dude, like hide somewhere. Uh, I know there's been some men that I think have played laser tag here in this particular building. I'm sure not in this room, but, you know, somewhere. Not that this room is any more holy than any other room, but you guys understand what I'm saying. And, and I know that I'm sure there was some good hiding spots, especially like underneath the the stage or someplace where you were like getting in all kind of nooks and crannies and cobwebs. Anyway, hide and go seek brilliant. Can we agree? You'd be a horrible hide and go seek player. Is that the right terminology? Hide and go seeker. You would be a horrible hide and go seeker. If you walked out and all you looked for were the things right in front of you. If I was looking and people were hiding like all underneath the seats and I was looking for all of you and all I saw was what was right in front of me, I would be horrible a true, real hide-and-go-seeker is someone who's, who's looking everywhere, underneath the pews, on everywhere, in, around all the nooks and crannies, under the trash can. I mean, everywhere. They, they look under everything. It's very active. It's very pursuing. Christ, listen, in his example of love, was very pursuing. He came... He initiated. He showed us what an active love looks like. He didn't come and react to people and then love him. No. He left heaven, humbled himself, like Philippians chapter 2 says, and sought out opportunities to love. He was always actively loving. That's who he was. And then you as a Christian are called to love actively like that. One of my greatest fears is that most Christians, many of you, love only reactively, love only what's right in front of you, love only the things that are easy. There was an interesting conversation I had today. Some of you guys received an email from me uh, that talked about a piece of it. I had a woman from Risen Lord, the church that we share this building with, call me. Say, hey, Mark, I need to tell you about an interaction I had with one of your folks. And 
And I said, okay, that's never a good start. And, um, and, and she said, um, one of your people, and I don't know who it was. She didn't know who, and I didn't ask what they looked like. She was just like, one of your folks was really inconsiderate to me. And I know it was one of your folks because I heard them talking about Matthias. And, and apparently, like, she was almost even in need of help. And from her side of the story, one of our people um, did not exemplify the love of Christ at all. And so I'm sitting here on the phone, and my heart is just breaking. And I'm like, how could, how could we miss this opportunity to love this woman so much so that it would affect her enough that it would get all the way to me? And so I'm sitting on the phone, and I'm like, you know what? I'm one of the shepherds of, of, of these sheep, and, and I, I deeply apologize, and I'm sorry. But what it proves is this, is we have imperfections. What it proves is this, is we, we aren't all the way loving like even sometimes we think we are. And this was a sister in Christ. And I think that's why she had the gumption to talk about it. So, so what does it mean then to actively love our brothers and sisters? What does it mean then to not just love reactingly? What does it mean to encourage one another? What does it mean to truly engage one another with a sincere, earnest, brotherly love? I want to show you five things. And these five things are going to be tough. But I searched through the scriptures and I found five specific things that I think are very active in the way that you and I need to be loving each other. The first one is this. We are called to lovingly Hold one another accountable. Uh, now the scripture reference here in Matthew chapter 7 is when Jesus is talking about taking the speck out of your own eyes so that you can properly see the speck out of your brother's eye. There's other, many other scriptures about accountability. And I chose this first to show a purpose. When we as the church are actively loving one another, then we will be holding one another accountable. You can tell we're being reactive when things are slipping through and we're watching brothers and sisters fail and we're not lovingly restoring them. Uh, some of you get so fearful about holding your brothers and sisters uh, in Christ accountable. And I say, why? This is one of the things that scripture has called us as brothers and sisters to sincerely and earnestly and actively as Christ did Love one another. Now, if we truly are called to be holy as he is holy, then what, what do you do when you see a brother or sister who's not being? Who's not being? Well, Matthew says that take the speck out of our own eyes. So yes, we aren't just supposed to be the one then that's pointing fingers at everyone saying, you're naughty, you're naughty, you're not. That's not, the, that's not the case. We're to humble ourselves, repent, and, and seek out the brothers and sisters who are falling. Now, here's the other piece of that. Well, Mark, how do I know? How do I know if someone's struggling? You start asking. You start talking about things that matter. You want to find out really quick how people are struggling and, and, and how people are joyful and their cup is overflowing, you start sitting down with your brothers and sisters and you start talking about things that have value. When that starts happening, I tell you what, people will start laying their hearts bare. Why? Because people aren't asking. 
And so when finally one person who seems interested enough to sit down, the patience enough to sit down and ask, you would be amazed at what people will share. Even your brothers and sisters here, who you, who some of you see over and over. I see you at La Fama. I see you a couple, I see, I see, I see. You see each other so much, some of you, that you've taken these relationships for granted. This is active. If you're reactive, you will not hold anyone accountable, including yourself. These get progressively tougher. Number two, love this passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says that we're to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Uh, for you men, this becomes a competition, but not really. You know what I'm saying? But, 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 the, but the feeling is, I should be so into showing honor to my brothers and sisters and, and it's not a measuring stick, and it's, but, but, the, but the thought is, like, I'm going to outlove you. I'm going to outserve you. And again, you're not thinking mentally this is gaining you anything, but that's the scripture. Right after this, it's, it's talking again about sincerely loving. What does it mean for you and your brothers and sister relationships to outdo one another in honoring one another? I'll tell you what it looks like. If some of you say you're not encouragers and that's your personality... Christ was an engager. He was one that held account, people accountable and he encouraged. Some of you, you have barely said an encouraging word out of your mouth. And I'm telling you, it's not your personality. It's your not Christ-likeness. You know, the old, the old song goes, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. They will know we are Christians by the amount that we encourage and we love on the brethren. And, and I think you guys have this misperception of what loving each other is for. So is the scripture just telling us we're supposed to give everyone warm fuzzies all the time? Like, no. Our love of one another is one of the greatest testimonies to the true movement of Christ. Anti-religion, full of relationship, period. And when Christian brothers and sisters are not loving one another then we are not revealing the great love of Christ. And I'll talk about that more here in just a little bit. Number three, we're not to put up a stumbling block to hinder each other. There's so many circles that we run with that are all built, Christian circles, that are all built on the premise of our sarcasm of our ability to talk about others, about our ability to increase our own value and decrease the value of others. And because there's so many, some of you are so fearful of saying something, of actually stopping what's happening. And so what do you do? You cowardly laugh as well. You hear the joke that the whole culture is saying, and you say it too. Even though ultimately, it has no glorifying value to Christ. But you have allowed your other brothers and sisters to cloud your view of what holiness is. And so because your other brothers and sisters seem so apt to participate, then you've convinced yourself in your mind that it must be okay. Some of you have groups of friends that you need to be the one that steps in and drops a grenade and just says, we're not pursuing holiness. Our conversations have no value. 
and ultimately we're a bunch of Christians that have just put up stumbling blocks for one another. It gets a little bit more intense with number four. We are to keep one another out of sexual temptation. Now, I've got a lot to say about this, but I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Put this up for me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, it's God's will that we become more like his son Jesus. That's his will for us. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is a warning to you folks right now who are in Christian relationships and you are allowing sexual immorality to come into the relationship. As a Christian brother and sister, you are called to flee from it, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. You are called to run from it. And you've painted this picture because once in a, once in a long while you pray together. You've painted this picture like you have some Christian relationship when behind closed doors, your relationship is all about your self-sexual satisfaction. You are not earnestly loving your brothers and sisters. In fact, some of you men in here who have allowed the relationship to get to that place, you are the biggest stumbling block in that relationship, period. I would never hesitate to to tell some of you men that you need to get out of the relationship now because of how poorly you are leading, how far you've let this relationship get into sin. He continues here in verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in what? But in holiness, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but what? See, see, and that's the important thing. I never want you to see me as some pastor up here who's just saying, hey, we need to do this, we need to do this. Look, as long as we stay true to the word of God, your issues or your qualms or even the things that you're feeling inside shouldn't be directed towards me. All I'm doing is trying as best as I sinfully can sometimes in my own depravity, preach the word of God. Your issue isn't with me, it's with God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you want to be a true brother and sister in Christ, then I tell you what, holiness in your premarital relationships is key. Is key. The grace of Christ is sufficient. Tonight, repent. Tell your girlfriend you're sorry. And seek the Lord. And maybe seeking the Lord will say it's time to end because it's clear that we're a stumbling block for one another. Number five, reconciliation or forgiveness for one another. In the context, Jesus is preaching um, the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about coming to the altar of sacrifice. And he, he says, before you do that, make sure that you have reconciled or forgiven your brother and sister. Can you see for a moment how all five of these things are very active? If you want to follow the scripture, if you desire to search the scripture and to continue to pursue holiness, then it means that you are earnestly, and there's more than this, this means that you are earnestly and sincerely loving your brother in at least these five ways. 
You're an encourager. You're holding accountable. You're not being a stumbling block for those that are around you. And we always only use alcohol for that example. It's one example, yes, but there's many others. So the easy question for all of us then is, do you feel like right now you are fervently, intensely loving your brother and your sister? And for some of you females that are confused by the brother here, again, it's Christians. It's not just talking to the men. Uh, earnest love. And he goes on in verse 23, like I said, working backwards. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the first thing that he does, uh, put up the, the verse for me. The first thing that he does is he talks about the command. The command first in verse 13 is to, is to hope all you have in Christ. Then a second command in chapter one is to be holy as he is holy. Then he says, love one another. And what does he begin verse 23 with? Since you have been born again. See, it's, it's one thing to say, uh, love one another. And it's another thing to say it's possible. See what I'm saying? Um, it, here's the cool thing. If AJ and I were in a relationship, and we are in a completely healthy way, if we are in a relationship and my love of AJ was based upon his worthiness of it, I wouldn't love him. If, if, if our relationship was based upon uh, his ability to, to make me happy, he would eventually fail. If my ability to love my brother AJ was all based upon how holy I see him, he will fail me but you've been born again. Listen, the new nature that comes with Christ is the Holy Spirit residing in the soul that's continually reminding you, you love because he first loved. You see that? Peter says, loving the brethren intensely, fervently, in ways even that, that seem uncomfortable, there is power in it and it's possible because you as a Christian have been born again. Let me describe one more thing about being born again. Uh, some of you, I realize, have no church experience and you're, you're like, well, so, so what does that mean to be born again? Christ, because of his sacrifice, gives us a new nature. And let me say this, he has to. He has to give us a new nature because the nature that we're born into is a nature that will only sin. Do you guys understand that? Outside of Christ, all I can do is sin. I have no capability, no empowerment to do anything else. Are you with me? But given the new nature, now all of a sudden, holiness becomes possible. I can look like Christ because he's empowering me to do so. Are you with me? So he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. I love this. Um, how many of you guys have ever bought something with a, a guarantee on it? Or at least seen Tommy Boy, right? How many of you guys have seen Tommy Boy? What a glorious, God rest, uh, Chris Farley, you know. What a great movie. But you guys remember like the guarantee part of that? And I don't need to rehash it. And I'm definitely not going to show the clip. But um, <clears throat> in our culture, there's power in guarantees, isn't there? So you go to, you know, you know, and some of you guys sell uh, uh, guarantees and, or warranties and, you, you know, you go to Best Buy, right? 
and you're like, all right, I'm going to buy this iPod, you know, and, and you get the really snazzy one. You get the two gig, you know, and you're really pumped about it. And, um, it, you know, and it's, it's great color and everything. And uh, it can hold like four songs. It's awesome. You're pumped about it. And, and then you get to the cash register. And what do they ask? What's the first thing they ask at the cash register? Anyone? Yeah, you, you, you want to buy the service plan. Well, how much will that cost me? Uh, that will cost you your mortgage over the next three years. But the good thing is, if a car runs over your iPod or anything else that happens, minus all the small print, th- then we'll give you a new one. And has that ever happened to you with your phone? Come on. A- any Verizon customers here? Yeah. Uh, here, here's the interesting thing. All right. Uh, so you want to buy the insurance plan. Well, how much is that? That's four ninety nine a month. Great deal. So anything that happens to my phone, I'm good to go. Oh, yeah, you're good to go. You know, so, and this is a true story. I, my phone dropped in the toilet one time. Anyone else? And, and it's tough because you're not fishing. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, at that point, it's just like, it's done. And I'll flush it. I mean, it's over, right? But listen, you, you, you go into Verizon. You go into Verizon. You're like, hey, it's a good thing I bought the insurance plan, right? So I bought the insurance plan. Really excited about this. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, here's the way the insurance plan works. Like, hey, you have to pay 50 bucks, and then you have to sign over your firstborn. And then we'll give you a, a, new, a new phone. Excuse me? Oh, yeah, it was all in the paperwork. Every possible guarantee in our culture is really not a guarantee. But listen, but we love it. And many of you have bought things simply because there was this like five-year service plan and it provided you some sense of security. This is the fourth time in 1 Peter that he's talked about something being imperishable. Do you guys understand? He's talked about the ransom being imperishable. He's talked about their faith being imperishable. Imperishable for Peter is huge. Why? Why is this security, this assurance, this imperishableness so key to Peter? Because his readers are worried about life and death. Peter's whole focus is get rid of the world Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh, completely and wholeheartedly focus on Christ, pursuing holiness, leave all of that behind because there's no security in it. There's no assurance in it. There's nothing that it provides. And he's hoping, he's praying that his readers would say, yes, this is imperishable. But what is he talking about here? The seed. What's the seed? So you're like, is that corn seed? Like, what, you know, what is he talking about? I think the parable of the sower gives us some indication. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, says that the seed is the what? Is the word of God. And at the end of verse 23, he says that. Through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24. For, he goes on to prove his point. All flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. I'll pause. Um, how many of you guys really like grass? Any of you? Come on, there's a few of you out there. Yeah. There's something pretty cool about it. Have you ever seen like a football field when it's all mowed? Right. Come on now. Right. Now, d- just get this picture. I mean, p- picture soldier field for me. Bears, you know, beautiful field. I went to a promise keepers. Funny story. Went to a promise keepers at soldier field when I was like 14 actually 23, and um, I grabbed a whole lump of Soldier Field grass, took it back and planted it in my lawn, you know? 
And I bring people over. I'm like, that's soldier field grass right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you like me now, buddy? Yeah. Verse 24, listen. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. And and I need to pause. Some of you in your landscape have put like these new grasses in there. Have you put these in there? The big ones that flourish. They're really big right now in landscaping. Well, what happens with that grass? Different from your crab grass that's in most of your lawns, right? This grass like actually produces a flower. But if your landscaping grass is like mine, eventually that flower withers and falls. And he says this at the beginning of verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now here's something crazy that happens. He's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses six through eight. Isaiah chapter 40, verse six through eight says this exact same thing. The flesh is like grass, produces a flower and the flower and the grass wither and fall, but the word of God remains forever. Isaiah writes way before Peter does. Way before, hundreds of years. But Isaiah has this message the word of God remains forever. Then, listen, hundreds of years later, Peter writes. And you know what Peter writes? The word of God remains forever. Hundreds of years span these brothers, and yet they both have this understanding. But there is a difference, isn't there? There's a difference, right? When Isaiah says the word of God, what does he mean? When Isaiah says the word of God, there's this, there's this like Torah mentioned. There's this Mosaic scripture. There is this, the Mosaic law that, that he has in mind. Yes, even the prophetic writings that come later. When Isaiah says the word of God lasts forever, remains forever, he's talking about the word of God that he can see, the word of God that's being preached. But for Peter... He understands John chapter 1. The the word became flesh. Isn't it incredible to know that as Isaiah even prophesies to Christ, then Peter says the exact same thing about Jesus. The word of God is not temporal. The word of God lasts forever. Two prophets, two preachers saying the exact same thing. And it begs the question, what do you and I say? Does the word of God really remain forever? Does it have eternal value? Well, it's found in the rest of verse 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's one word in verse 24 that I want to pay much attention to. That word's glory. It's talking about the glory of the flesh. The glory of the flesh are the things that in your mind you perceive give you value. Some of you, some of you think you're the best at what you do. I mean, some of you are, are whatever. You know, so, some, of you, some of you have business jobs. And, and all day, every day, all, you're, you're, you're at your office and you're, and you're really efficient. And there's a certain amount of fleshly glory that that provides some of you. Your employees see you as a a nice person in the lunchroom. Like, you know, they love sitting by you. Your status provides you some piece of glory. Uh, For for others of you, 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 you're actually a manager. You're a boss. 
And, and that earns you a, a parking spot. That, that gives you certain clout among your friends. Uh, others of you have had at least prominence in some of your circles. And, and there's certain fleshly glory that comes with that. But Peter keeps honing the message true. All of that will fall. So love your brother. And it's possible because you're born again. So love your brother. You don't need to try to earn glory in the flesh because it's like grass with a flower and it's seasonal. It's temporal. It doesn't have any eternal value whatsoever. Listen, as the church would read this, that's why it would breathe hope because they didn't have to sit and rest in all of the circumstances that were happening around them. And for many of you, your current scenario has taken you far away from the word of God last forever. And you've allowed the situations in your life to dictate this potential of glory that you've perceived in your mind. At the end of verse 25, he says this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. You've already heard it. You've already have it. You already have access to it. Unbelievable verses demanding a phenomenal response from us. Um, I, I need these, these some papers passed out to everyone. If, if we can get some help here, I think there's a few folks. You guys can stand up with me. Everyone needs one of these. So grab one of these. Um, you guys can pass them out a little bit quicker. Be great. Like passing it just to the person to your left and right. That's nice, but yeah. you're going to need a pen, and there should be a pen right in front of your face in your pew. So grab that. don't have one yet, just raise your hand so we can make sure we get you one of these high quality pieces of paper. Does everyone have one? I want you to read with me at the top of your, of your piece of paper. When we are faced with the power of his reality, we are humbled by the state of our own. In other words, what Peter has done in chapter one is he has very strongly showed how great God is, how faithful he is, how imperishable the things are that he provides. And he keeps reminding those who are reading how lacking they are how insignificant they are, and yet they can hope in who he is. The word of God lasts forever, but flesh is fleeting. You are not holy, but through Christ you can be holy. You have no worth, but with Christ all of a sudden you have worth. 
You have no hope apart from Christ, but through Him, you have a living hope in His grace. A big piece of our relationship with Christ is seeing I am dot, 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 but He is. I am weak, but He is strong. I am inconsistent, but He is faithful. And the list goes on and on and on. Here's what I'm asking you to do right now. I'm asking you to take a few moments with your pen and that piece of paper. And I'm asking you to to begin to fill that out. To begin to think about your own lacking. And in the category of I am, put those there. And as you think and marvel at who God is, Add those to the, but he is. Now, here's the thing too. I recognize for some of you, uh, you don't know who he is. But you probably know at least a little bit about who you are. About where the status of your heart is tonight. So maybe for you, it's just, I am this and this and this. Tonight as we respond... I want us to be very clear about the power of his word living in Christ, living in us through the Holy Spirit has eternal value and and eternal significance. And when we're faced with that reality, it humbles us in the state of our own. Some of you guys continue to write. I want you to understand this. At a time when the the church that Peter's writing to was in turmoil, was in chaos, Peter ends with this command to you still must love your brothers. And the hope for us tonight is that in our insufficiencies as a church to follow that command well, he has promised that his love is patient and it's kind, that it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not rude, it's not proud, it's not self-seeking, keeps no record of wrongs. It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Tonight, our heart in and of itself, though not filled with love, our hope is that through Christ, we can be the encouragers. We can be those who hold one another accountable. We can be those who protect our brothers and sisters from sexual temptation and from being a stumbling block in other areas. God, I pray tonight as we're faced with your great reality and the lack of our own, I pray that you'll stir this particular church in all of our failings to love well because you first loved us. Continue writing and responding. Let's worship together.